Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Olivia. I'm here with Joel Nayum, our nonfiction category manager, and we're here today with Mark Manson, the author of Everything is Fucked. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for coming, Mark. Thanks for having me. It's good to be back here. Yes, great. I, I have never met you before, but it's been a very <laughs> pleasurable hour of getting your book signed. Thanks so much for taking the time. Absolutely. Um, I thought I would start by asking about the subtitle of your book. Sure. Um, it's a it's a fascinating you have a fascinating sort of interpretation of the word hope <laughs> <laughs> and I just wanted to get your sort of definition of it okay so the, for people who, who aren't aware of the book it, it's called everything is fucked a book about hope and ultimately the book is you know initially the, the promise of the book is very obvious is that you know people are freaking out these days everybody seems to be upset if you go on twitter you know you want to put your head in an oven it's it's the world seems to be kind of at this fever pitch at the moment and everybody regardless of your politics or your beliefs seems to be looking for hope and so the book initially promises that hope promises like you know you're gonna have some vision of a better future of a possible future and that's how i define it as the book goes on, not to spoil too much, as the book goes on, I start talking about how these visions of a, a potentially better future can actually uh, get into trouble. You know, when, when we invest too much of ourselves into these ideas of what a better future is, um, we... Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope nobody else could hear that. Yeah, right? A, a very <laughs> ominous squealing sound from outside the booth. <laughs> Uh, but but the more people invest in these visions of, of, of what they think a better future is, it, it, the more possible kind of collateral damage mm. happens in our culture and our society. Absolutely. This idea of a sort of give and take. Mm -hmm. If you hope for something and you achieve it, then someone else's dream is broken, basically. Right. Or you, you start, you, when, you, when you make your hope more important than, say, other people, uh, you're willing to harm or even sacrifice other people in the process of attaining what you hope for. Mm, absolutely. I think that's really interesting. Um, another concept in the book that I really like, and I have read elsewhere, but I've never s seen it put together in such a sort of articulate and easy to understand way, is your conception of the, the feeling brain and the thinking brain. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and the clown car. <laughs> and I wondered if you could tell us a bit about that. Sure. People love the clown car. I love the clown car. <laughs> I know so many clown cars. Yeah, there are a lot of clown cars <laughs> in this world. Um, so the, the, the second chapter of the book is kind of this extended analogy that I draw out for like 30 pages, um, which is basically, you know, if you imagine that our, our consciousness is a car, um, and imagine that we have two brains, a thinking brain and a feeling brain. And it's kind of self-explanatory what each brain does. One thinks and one feels. Um, our, our typical assumption is that our feeling brain is driving our car, or sorry, that our thinking brain is driving our car and our feeling brain is like the obnoxious passenger, you know, who's like screaming out the window and, you know, saying like, ooh, let's go over there. And you, you're kind of like, as a, as a responsible thinking brain who's in charge of driving somewhere important, you're like always telling your feeling brain to just shut up, sit down. No, we're not going to like pull over and eat a whole 
bin of chocolate or whatever. Uh, and it's, it's this idea of what self-discipline is, or, or I guess being a functioning mature adult is, is this idea that, you know, our thinking brain needs to overrule our impulses and emotions to behave appropriately in the world. Turns out like none of that's true. Uh, if, if you take into psych research, it, it turns out that our feeling brains are driving the car and our thinking brains are in the passenger seat. Um, and at best they're, they're like the navigator. They have a map. They, they have a, they're the ones that have a vague sense of where to go. But if the feeling brain doesn't want to drive there, we don't drive there. So this is, this is how you end up with these situations like, okay, I know I should get up and go to work, but I hit snooze and roll over. Mm. Um, or I know I should stop eating pizza for breakfast every day. Uh, but I keep doing it, you know? So it's this, this constant experience of like knowing intellectually knowing what our behavior should be, but impulsively and emotionally not being able to fall, follow through on that behavior. And then what the clown car is, is, is so this living with this arrangement of, of like knowing what you should do, but continually failing to do it. It's a very upsetting experience. Like every, we've all gone through it many times. And so, uh, one way that our minds kind of conspire to avoid that upsetting experience is the feeling brain and the thinking brain kind of make a tacit agreement between each other, which is uh, the feeling brain can do whatever they want and then the thinking brain will justify it later. So <laughs> it's, you know, you start end ending up with people who are able to rationalize any sort of bad behavior that they want. They're like, oh, well, I deserve pizza in the morning because, man, I worked so hard last night. And, uh, you know, pizza gives me more energy. So it's, you know, pizza's healthy. You should, everybody should eat it for breakfast. You know, <laughs> we start kind of deluding ourselves into these ideas and beliefs because we want to avoid that uncomfortable uh, feeling of not being in, having control of ourselves. Um and so I call that the clown car because it's, it's basically, it's this loud, springy, obnoxious vehicle, uh, that is, uh, careening from across the highway and, and is willing to basically do whatever it wants and whatever feels good. Mm. Terrifying, but I think I've definitely been there <laughs> and uh, I could probably make an argument that I'm still there now in certain aspects of my life. We all have our clown car moments for sure. <laughs> um, I, I think one of the other interesting ideas you explore in the book and possibly as we were talking about earlier, something that's gotten you into trouble <laughs> yeah. is this idea of um, articulating different ideologies including religion itself mm -hmm. as religions sure and the way that hope interacts with religion i thought that would be an interesting thing to sort of hear your thoughts about yeah um so it's funny because chapter four in the book is about this idea of of religion and uh and it's funny because people people who end up not liking the book like that's where i lose them <laughs> because <laughs> basically the argument i make is i say look the hope for anything, we all need some hope. We all like hope is what kind of keeps us psychologically stable. We all need something to look forward to in our lives. Uh, but in order to hope for something, because you're, because hope is based in the future, you have to put your faith in something without knowing if it's necessarily a good thing. So it's like, I, for instance, I hope, um, you know, my next book is really successful. 
but I don't know if that's a good thing or not. Like you can't know for certain if whatever you hope for is, is a good thing. So you have to have faith that it's a good thing. Um, so all of our hopes are ultimately faith-based. Um, if you hope for world peace, that is a faith-based belief that world peace is going to create a better world. If you hope for more economic equality, that is a faith-based belief, you know, on and on and on. And so everything, you know, it starts at things like God, but it can come all the way down to economic ideologies, political ideologies, all the way down to the level of like, well, I hope juniors has gets good grades at school because if he gets good grades, then, you know, he'll have a better life. Like that is also a faith-based hope that you put stock into. Um, and so I, I basically make the an argument of like whatever, like dear reader, whatever you are hoping for in your life is uh, an arbitrary construct <laughs> <laughs> that you are believing purely on faith. And, it, and therefore it could be completely wrong and it probably is going to be wrong at some point. Um, because all human created constructs are wrong at some point. Um, and so that's, on the one hand, I think it's a very important point to make because I think as, as a culture right now, we're experiencing a lot of very, uh, extreme belief systems. We're seeing a lot of extreme belief systems arise and, and become more prominent. Uh, but it's also, it's a hard pill to swallow. It's a, it's hard for readers to, you know, look at their own, uh, hopes and, and belief systems and realize that like, Hey, you know, I don't actually know if this is a good thing or not. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's quite upsetting, <laughs> but it's also sort of freeing. Yes. Did you, did you find yourself being persuaded by your own? I mean, in some ways this is your ideology. Yeah. Um, did you feel like you, as you articulated it, when you wrote it, it was something that sort of you became that ideology or, or have you been dissuaded since? <laughs> uh, well, I, I think, you know, a lot of this book was, is, so I went through a little bit of, I guess you could call it an existential crisis, a midlife crisis, an identity crisis, uh, you know, in the period where I started writing this book. And so a lot of this book is kind of writing, it's like making sense of what I was experiencing. And so I had some experiences, uh, where a lot of what I, where I had put my hopes, a lot of my beliefs and my goals and my dreams and my, uh, I guess, ideologies, um, I experienced them fail over a period of a few years. And that failure was very painful and upsetting. And so um, a lot of that part of the book is kind of inspired by that of like, hey, we all need to be a little bit more aware that, you know, we're, the more hope you put into to one single thing, the more you're setting yourself up for like just falling flat on your face at some point. Absolutely. Hence the title. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it does, it feels like a book of our times yeah. in a way that I didn't feel that way about subtle art in the same way, even yes. though obviously it was, but this feels like a reaction to things in a way that subtle art wasn't in the I, same I think that's really accurate. Um, I think subtle art was written to be timeless a little bit. Mm. You know, it's, it's people, all, all the issues and themes in subtle art are, are pretty universal across, you know, whatever's going on in your life. Whereas this book is very much like, um, what the hell's happening in the world right now? And, and I wanted to write, I basically wanted to write a book explaining how I see what's happening in the world right now 
but write it in an apolitical way because at least i don't know about here but at least in the u.s every book that's kind of trying to figure out what the hell's happening to society uh there's a there's a very clear political agenda infused into that book and so i wanted to write a book without a political agenda that mm. kind of craps on political agendas um in the process yeah and i really loved it for that uh, i'm loving it for that yeah thank you thank you <laughs> uh, because it's you know it's i think it's a very depressing part of our current um current 2019 time is that we feel not only is everything fucked but everyone's fucked when they talk about how everything is yeah fucked. right <laughs> i mean every, everything feels politicized now like it feels like everything mm. is uh I mean, it, it, at least I guess somebody who I guess, uh, you know, is very public, like a, being a public person and doing interviews and publishing stuff like one of one of the experiences I've been having the last few years is that, you know, I write self-help. Basically, most of my work is just self-help. And it's suddenly people are starting to p politicize stuff that I say and write in ways that like I never intended or never wanted it to be. Mm. Um, and so a lot again part of this book is a little bit of a reaction to that of like why the hell is everybody making everything political like why can't we just <laughs> why can't we all just get along well yeah right like why can't we just go about our lives and you know put politics over here and then you know the rest of like spend the rest of our life like being normal human beings you know it just it it feels like we're losing that ability yeah do you feel that's changing do you i feel like people are getting tired of politics in a sort of really almost existential way. Yeah. Like, I'm done with this. I want to stop talking about this. Whilst at the same time still sort of consuming media and making themselves angry. Well, I, I think that's the, that I mean, that's a really interesting point because I think that's that's part of the problem. Like I think there's, our, our online experience is very much not reflecting our day-to-day face-to-face so i think you are right in in like in the real world like when i when you go and see people face-to-face -face, people are like let's just not talk about it like let's enjoy ourselves um, it but, sounds like my friday night dinners with my family yeah <laughs> we can only have this if we do not talk about politics. yeah right but then you go online and it's just like a shit show like yeah. it's just mud flying in every direction and so and it feels like online it's getting worse, whereas in person people are learning to kind of like deal with it. Ignore it. Yeah. I'll save my vitriol for 2 a.m. on Twitter. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everything really is fucked. Because <laughs> it's more just about who is the loudest because in this yeah. age of like, you know, going viral, getting the most likes and clicks and views and whatever, like people just, their views get more and more, not extreme, but more potent in a way. Like mm. they can only express how they feel even though there may be like subtleties and nuances in how they're feeling and what they believe like that doesn't come across on social media in the best way no so i think that that just makes that whole problem if you call it a problem worse absolutely i i think i think social media or just the internet in general is a terrible medium for to having any of these discussions you know yeah, i okay. i in, in my talks that i've been giving i've been comparing like a political discussion on twitter is like breaking up with somebody over text like it's just it's the worst way to do it <laughs> because you're going to create all sorts of unnecessary problems in the process but yeah like one of the biggest problems with with i think just the the technology in general is that the internet unintentionally rewards extreme and emotionally charged views and so if you're 
and basically the business model of everything, whether you're Facebook or, um, you know, a newspaper or magazine or whatever, everything revolves around clicks and attention. So if you are, if every media outlet and every individual who is participating in any discussion always has an incentive to be as incendiary or as bold as possible, you're going to start, you're going to see, uh, people's views start to skew in every direction. Mm. And one of the, one of the points I make in this book too, is that this extremism, like we, we're always talking about political polarization, but it's, it's not just political. Um, like the flat earth society is seeing its membership explode right now. Uh, it's anti-vaccination movements are just blowing up in all the, all the major cities in the U S you know? So it's, it's not this, this move towards extreme viewpoints is not, limited to political views it's it's Absolutely. everything mm. it feels like an internet problem yes because uh, all social media is a form of branding yeah like if you're on twitter or instagram or whatever you're instantly just making yourself a brand and that's not even getting into like social media influences and yeah. people who are like intentionally pushing brands it's like there are people on twitter who are just famous for being on twitter yeah. in a way yeah and it seems i i was listening to another podcast the other day um about YouTube's changes in algorithm, how they started preferencing minutes listened as opposed to interactions. Mm -hmm. And that caused this massive increase in the amount of long form YouTube shows yeah. that really encourage people to listen for a long time. And that sort of ultimately encourages extremism yeah. because people go down further and further. And the longer you listen to something, the more it will get pushed to the to, to listeners. Mm -hmm. Which really fascinated me, and I thought, I wonder if that's you know somewhere in the core of what has happened to us. Well, <laughs> it, it's I don't know if there's a metric right now that doesn't push extremism because so if you go mm. for instance if you go back to engagement, uh, well the stuff that gets the most engagement is the most extreme content. You know, like I and I I used to run into this as a content creator, you know, because I was a blogger for ten years before I you know started publishing books. Um, I used to run into it myself. It's like, okay, well, I could I could write a very useful, helpful article uh, that people would like, but they it wouldn't generate a lot of comments and it wouldn't get shared a lot on Facebook or Twitter. Um, or I could write something ridiculous, just trashing somebody or something, and and I know I'm going to get like 500 comments and people are going to get angry and they're going to show it to their friends and my traffic's going to go up. And so it's like I I... I've felt that I've been on that side of it and it's um, and I don't know what metric if you're YouTube I don't know what metric you optimize for I don't know how you absolutely it doesn't seem to be a way out of it does yeah, it? yeah I, I don't know what you do because they were fixing the problem the what they call the Gangnam style problem where yeah eventually every if you just left YouTube on it would just keep recommending the next most popular thing yeah until it would get to the most popular thing which at the time Gangnam was Gangnam style, style yeah. <laughs> which is obviously a bad algorithm sure that, sh that shouldn't be how it works yeah but if the opposite is you end up listening to KKK supporters yeah, <laughs> for yeah. three hours that's not great either so yeah. I don't know how to get out of that I was well, hoping you could tell me <laughs> well you know I so the the end of the book the last the last chapter of the book I kind of um, it, 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 it's a little bit of a trippy chapter. It's about AI and it, and I kind of just spitball and brainstorm a bunch of things that make sense to me. And one of the things I mentioned in that chapter is that at some point I feel like, you know, the way Google has developed this incredible algorithm that can organize information based on 
what people want, um, at some point we need to develop some sort of algorithm that can organize information based on veracity and utility, and mm. and there need and it needs to be implemented within our our user interface. So it's like if I'm scrolling through an article, there's some sort of AI that can like recognize statements and rate how true or biased they are. Um, how we get to that point, I don't think technologically we're there yet. We'd also have to set up some sort of like non non-profit non so like some some whoever runs that algorithm would have to be like unaffiliated with anybody <laughs> uh, but it but it's like I, I don't know we need something like that because it's uh without without any sort of check on um and to bring it back to the thinking brain and feeling brain without any like consistent way of checking uh, with our thinking brain to make sure that what we're reading is true or useful or helpful, um, our feeling brain is going to run amok. And, Absolutely. And it's going to encourage us without us even realizing to all become clown cars. Yeah. And in that <laughs> sense, it really is a book about hope. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, before we finish, I wondered if you could just tell us um, what what's next for you. What's what's the next big project? Uh, I'm, I'm currently uh, co-authoring Will Smith's book. Uh, the Will Smith, the Will Smith, the not, one and not, only, not Mr. Smith. Not, the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's it, it's it's a really cool project. It's um, it's part memoir, part kind of inspiration, self help. It's like the lessons from his life type of thing, and it's uh, it's been really really cool to to work with him. This Absolutely, bit. yeah, very exciting. Yeah, well, that sounds awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mark, for spending time with us today. And I can't wait to finish the book. Yeah. <laughs> and um, best of luck with the next project. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Uh, you can order your copy of Everything is Fucked uh, from Booktopia or from your local bookstore. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Booktopia podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. And if your eyeballs need a workout, check us out on YouTube at Booktopia TV. And don't forget for all books featured on this episode and all episodes of the Booktopia podcast, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore at www.booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening.